Today we're continuing our series on prayer. And last week where we ended, but we spent a considerable amount of time, so we'll call this a review, is we saw that in the Tanakh there are 140 incidences of people praying, of which 43 we do not what we don't know what they prayed. This says that they prayed, but in 97 of them, the the prayers are recorded in the Tanakh. This is besides the Book of Psalms, and so therefore we see that the paradigm of prayer we can learn from these stories and incidences. Many are in the Chumash, and many are spread out uh, in the rest of the, the Tanakh. We see a, a, a simple formula. I'm calling it simple only because uh, in, in more sophisticated eyes it may seem simple. So if we look at the prayers as recorded in the Tanakh, they are basically conversations. In other words, people talk to people. And in the Tanakh, we have people talking to God. And in many cases, God answering them. So it's hard to pass over or deny this model of prayer because everything is rooted in the Torah and in the Tanakh. So if we're looking for what what does prayer mean, how can we relate to it, what are the models we should follow, these are the examples that are given. And we learned last week that uh, almost all of these prayers had a three-part formula where the person praying addresses God now it doesn't just launch into their prayer but addresses God by name or uh, introduces the fact that he's calling God's attention the second is that there is some sort of petition the person is asking for something usually very specific And the third, in many of them, is uh, the first two we can understand. And we can see that that's where we get at least part of the formula of the Amida, is first, the first three is we are, in a sense, addressing God. Blessed are you... The Lord our God, the God of Avram, the God of Yitzhak, the God of Yaakov. So we're beginning with a, a addressing. The middle 12 slash 13 blessings are petitions, requests. So that we can see that how we come to the model that we have. The third part is a little different though. And a, a, a touch surprising where it was motivation that in the prayer itself 
the person is explaining to God why you should answer my prayer. As we, as we learned last week, it's not so much a motivation on the part of the person praying, but it's just an interesting twist that, that over and over again, people give reasons to God why you should answer my prayer. But what we get out of all of this is the paradigm of prayer in the Torah is speaking with God and asking God for things. Now today what we're going to do is we're going to take that model and we're going to see, we'll call it from a philosophical point of view, there are many uh, paradoxical questions we can ask about this. And then we're going to look at some answers to these questions. And we're going to further look at how, during Jewish history, different periods of time dealt with these same questions. The implication is, depending on how we answer these questions, is what you think about prayer. And we're going to see that the, we'll call it the philosophy of prayer, has changed greatly over the generations. It's actually a fascinating study, as last week I will point out, and since we can actually do this, that uh, much of what I'm taking is from this book called Kavana by Seth Kaddish. Now, the fact that there are questions about prayer does not mean it's universal. In, in other words, certain people receive a tradition of praying. Let's say they're brought up um, to pray from a very young age. And they may never ask these questions. It just may never cross their mind. And if, even if it crossed their mind, it, 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 it has no real relevance to them. Because they're just, their prayer is based on a deep and, and simple faith. Simple not meaning naive and not meaning um, unintellectual. Just meaning um, not complicated faith. Just a pure, sincere faith. But we'll see, uh, especially people who are not raised in prayer and then are invited into a, a situation where there, there's praying going on, or start to become religious and start thinking about these things, and all, many questions are, rise up. And the first one is, if God knows everything, doesn't he know what I'm going to pray? And if he knows what I'm going to pray, why am I doing it? Uh, these questions, by the way, have prevented many a person from being able to pray. They're not like questions. For a lot of people who, at a certain age in their life, who have been praying or haven't, but are interested in it, and they ask these questions, some people get through them and some people don't. So this is a basic question. It's raised by our sages and rabbis throughout the ages also. And usually they come up with the answers, but still there are questions. 
They're legitimate questions. If we're taking a model of prayer where it's, I just talk to God and I, I tell Him what I think and I ask Him things, and if someone is sick, I want them to be well, and if I don't have a livelihood, I want livelihood, and down the line, I'm asking God to give me things. So that was our first question. The first question is, the whole uh, exercise of prayer, how do we understand it? God knows everything. So why do I have to tell him anything? That even more serious questions. Is, do we presume to be able to change God's mind? In other words, uh, and this question has been asked through the ages, in other words, if, some, if I don't have livelihood, am I presuming God doesn't know what's best for me? Am I presuming that God doesn't know what's happening? And do I presume that my, by my prayers I can change God's mind? Because we have this idea that, that God is not acted upon by other forces. It's one of the, let's, say, let's call it again, the philosophical definition of God is that He moves everything and as it were, nothing moves Him. So here we're saying that God decrees that someone should be sick and I'm saying to God, please make this person not sick. So it's like a question. What exactly are we doing here? Now I have to mention now that when we talk about prayer, in the most technical sense, we're talking about only one prayer. And that's called the Amida. The 18 or now 19 lessons. When in, in the Gemara they talk about prayer, they're not talking about Shema. They're not talking about Pesuket de Zimra. They're not talking about morning brachas. In, in, in the narrowest sense. Just like when we say Torah, in the narrowest sense, it means the five books of Moshe. That's what Torah means. In the broadest sense, anything that has to do with Gomorrah, Mishnah, Midrash, Zohar, Kabbalah, whatever, Halakha, it's all called Torah. So same thing with prayer. So right now we're really only talking about the idea of requesting from God. How do we understand that? So these are, these are the two main questions. We have other questions connected, which all of us probably have asked at some point. Is the God, an infinite God, is He really that concerned with my seemingly small needs and desires? In other words, that, is that the best way to approach God? I want this, and I want this, and I want this, and I want this. It's a question. And then there is the question, the ultimate question of, of the purpose of prayer. Are we praying because God needs our prayers? Did we serve God in the temple because God does God need our prayers? We have, if we hold such a thing, we have a problem. We say God has no needs. 
God has no desires, at least as far as human intellect can understand. So if God doesn't need prayers, so why did he have us pray to him? Now, there are answers for all of these things. And there are actually many answers. But right now, I'm just, we're just developing the questions. And so a lot of people, when they ask these questions, if they can't find good answers, uh, then prayer becomes an exercise in futility. And if I think of myself at least as being intellectually advanced or mature, becomes almost foolish. Like, do I really presume to think I can change God's mind? And if I do, what does it what does it tell me about God? If I think that I can change God's mind, then how do we understand an all-knowing, all-powerful God? All I have to do is say, "Could you please do this?" Oh, okay. Well. What happens to our definition of God? So you see the paradoxes here. There are, yeah. Um, it's really interesting because I just finished reading this book called The Secret. Right? I read The Secret. It's very nice, you know, if you think positive and you put up positive energy, you know. So I read the whole book, and they even talk about God at the end of the book. But I'm sitting there thinking that it's like no hashkacha punching in the book. It's like no no God's will. It's all my will. It's all everything that I'm totally in control of everything right. that happens. Right. right. So yeah. So but the thing is, there is a part of truth in the book also, and I guess it's part of a paradox of you know like I haven't quite figured out how it all works, but yeah. And it's also involved with prayer also, you know, because yeah. it's kind of like a very prayer much. that they're putting out. Very much, very much. The, the secret, which is, we'll call it the most recent rage, um, like, many, like many things, it, it, it has not just even a little bit of truth, it has a lot of truth right. to it. Right. It has a lot of truth, and it it's, uh, fits in perfectly with many, many most uh, ideas within Judaism up to a point and here we go back to our original model where Jewish belief believes in a personal God and not a formless energy that we call the universe or some um, divine energy out there that either works through the laws of nature or um, created the world but is does not deal with the little tiny details. That, that in the laws of nature, so if I put out a certain energy, so it will come back to me. And that is true. We also believe that. We believe it very strongly. Mita connect Mita. A measure for a measure. But that is a, a glaring difference is that the secret really posits uh, a world where uh, it comes dangerously close to saying that we're in charge. Here. Mm-hmm. Basically, if we put out a certain energy, we will get it back. And if we don't, then you're just not doing it right. Mm-hmm. 
life is far more complicated than that. Reality is far more complicated. And that's the danger of the secret. The danger of the secret is if you don't get what you ask for, it's just like either you're not doing it right or there's something wrong with you. Because they set it up that if you ask for it and you put out the energy, you will get it. It's guaranteed. Okay, so going back to this idea, what, what, what he calls the, the, the model of simple prayer, where we, do, we converse with God and, and, and we talk with God. So we, we have like a paradox here. Because the Balshemto, for example, who was on the highest intellectual level, had complete uh, understanding of all of uh, Jewish wisdom and, and Kabbalah. And he said, like, the highest level is simple faith. And that's why we have all these stories of the Balshemto praising the so-called simple water carrier and baker and farmer whatever who just approached his Judaism and his prayers from this sincere honest total faith and just talks to God and his complete faith so with all of his intellectual levels he held that's, that's, that's the highest. And if all of the Kabbalah takes you away from that, then you're going in the wrong direction. Or Rabbi Nachman also is, I mean, the heights of, of intellectuality, the Kute Maharan, right, to understand it. And yet he said everyone should go out into nature and talk to God like your best friend. So it, it sounds like a paradox, but it's not really. In other words, if, like I said, if the high intellectual gets you into these paradoxes and you can't get out of them, then, then what's the point of intellect? And what's the point of intellect if it just snarls you in paradoxes that you cannot, not only cannot solve, but makes you lose your incentive and your faith. But nonetheless, these questions are very strong questions. So, we see that in the, in the Middle Ages, many great uh, teachers and scholars felt that the, the simple paradigm of prayer was just that. It was too simple. And that because of all of these paradoxes, they didn't want to feel that, that prayer is simply trying to change God's mind. They, they were not comfortable with that. Now, you said in the Middle Ages. Uh, and this was a, a movement or this was a group? No, it, it, we'll see different, I'll mention specific, specific people. In other words, because of these questions, of does God need prayer? Can we change God's mind? If God knows what we're praying beforehand, then what exactly are we doing? Um, so, not that people wanted to change the prayers, but wanted to give a different explanation 
of what we're getting out of prayer other than just asking all the time mm-hmm. when you're using the word prayer are you speaking about the Amida also? Again, only the Amida. Only the Amida. Yeah. You use that term. Yeah. Okay. Like I, said, we're, like I said, we're not talking about saying brachas, making blessings on food or in the morning, or what's called Sukkot and Zimra, where we're praising God. Okay. So if you're saying that Rabbi Nachman says, go out into nature and talk to and pray by talking to God. Are we using? We're not talking about. No, no, no. This now is we're talking about keep better do. There is a different. Right, right. This is after the regular prayers. After regular. Yeah, after after we've uh, fulfilled our obligation to daven three times a day. Right. Then he has encouraged people. Put it this way. He he also, um, any form of what we'll call uh, informal prayer must have arisen that. That must that prayer has much more to offer than just what we say in the sitter in the Bay Knesset at certain times with a community. And so therefore this idea of Heath Bodadut was all of that is not only good, it's you know, it's tremendous. But there's another side of prayer that a person also needs. So his idea he bought to do was not in place of anything else. It was in addition to it. Okay? So, first we'll look at, at the time of the Rambam, there was around three, four, five hundred years where rationalism was a prime force in, in Jewish thinkers. This is when the Kuzari was written, when the Guide for the Perplex was written, when uh, different philosophical books dealing with like the the whole picture of Judaism, right? It was it was the first of what we will call like Jewish philosophy. Where they weren't writing just about halacha or, or trying to figure out the Gemara, they were writing broader uh, reasons for things, broader attitudes, foundational ideas. Uh, Rabbeinu Yona, uh, and here we're gonna we'll start with two. Rabbi Yosef Albo, who wrote a book called Sefer Ha'ikarim. Like the, the book of essentials, and Rabbi Bechaya Ben Padua, who, who wrote Chovot um, mm-hmm. Obligations of the Heart. So these were the first attempts to take all of Judaism and, and give it a a intellectual framework. The Rambam was around a thousand. Um, and Yehuda Levi Kuzari was around um, a thousand. Ramchal already seventeen hundred, but they were the first ones to be writing books like this mm-hmm. that are, are still studied. And both Rabbi Yosef Albo and Rabbi Bechaya, uh, they both presented a we'll call it a, a new way of looking at prayer where they were very uncomfortable with this idea of God needing our prayers 
changing God's mind, um, saying things that God knows already. So they came up with this idea that, that many people have heard, is that we're not praying so much because God needs our prayers, but we need our prayers. But in what sense? In what sense? In other words, when I ask God for wisdom and understanding, when I ask God for health, when I ask God for livelihood, uh, when I ask God for uh, to come close to His Torah, what they were teaching was this is an exercise in self-education. And probably you've all heard this idea that when, when we express our prayers, it makes us aware of, of what we need, what we're lacking, who we are, why we're asking for something, what we'll do with it if we get it, and that was, that was their idea. When I said it, doesn't mean that they were uh, nullifying anything. They were bringing a new explanation of why are we praying, what do we get out of it. Um, isn't there this whole idea that's presented like, in Bereshit that it said like, that Adam and Shem was placed in the garden in order to work in the garden? So they said, well, what was his work? It was to pray that the grass was already like right underneath the ground and it was waiting for him to pray for the rain and for the grass to grow in order for it to grow. And there's also facetious stories about how God wants to give us things but we have to ask for it first because oh, through okay. our asking we're acknowledging that it all comes from Hashem. That that's the source of everything oh. in our life. Right, okay. So that, that point is <coughs> very well taken. That through the act of prayer, we make ourselves fitting vessels for what we're asking. But it's not like we're changing God's mind. Mm. Right? It's just a, it, it, it maybe we're just not ready until we ask for it in a way that changes us. Yeah. So the idea of self-education through prayer how is that different than what she was talking about with the secret in that if it's just about kind of shifting your energy or shifting your focus or kind of realigning yourself, then doesn't that take God out of the equation in a way? No, the difference is when we pray, we, um, we don't necessarily expect to get everything. Whereas in the secret... They, they, they make a very strong case. All you have to do is ask for it, to change your attitude, align yourself with the energies of the universe, and you will get it. But when we pray, we do not have that presumption. We do not have the presumption that even if I clarify that I really want something, it doesn't mean that I will get it. And it doesn't mean that God like, hates me because I don't get it. Do you know what I'm saying? That's a big difference. But, that, but the first thing I said is that much of what the, the secret says is sound. This idea of you get back what you put out 
is, is a very Jewish idea. And we, we have a word for it called Mita, connected Mita. Right? What you put out is what you get back. It's even called a spiritual law. But it's not absolute. Life is just much more complicated than that. But still, but still that, that in many times, that by praying for something, it's a case of not just self-education, a, a, a sense of refining ourselves and making ourselves fitting vessels for what we're asking for. And then in many cases, we, we do get it. We do get it. So here we're, we introduced a, a, a very important idea that along with the uh, the simple paradigm of prayer of just having simple faith and believe in a personal relationship with God and that God listens and that God cares and that uh, God will hopefully grant my my uh, my request and all these others are trying to fill that out if someone has a problem with that paradigm. So here we see how prayer can be reformulated into helping us refine our our inner world and what we really need, what we really want, and where are we going. Like you said, that through the act of prayer, it clarifies our position vis-a-vis God. And that's also very important. That's also very important. That alone, when we bow in the Shemona Esrei, of course, most of the time we don't think about what we're doing. But let's say on Rosh Hashanah, when we get down on our hands and knees, that's a little bit more dramatic. So we think, like, (laughs) I'll just speak for myself. Uh, uh, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, for me, that is always... The, the pinnacle experience um, is, is those few moments, really, that we, we get down. Because it really, it, it just opens up my neshama. It just absolutely opens up my neshama. And yet we bow seven times in each monastery. But we do it so, you know, by rote, that we don't think of the implications. What does it mean? Like, who am I bowing before? Right? What does this mean? What is? What are the implications of the vows? So now let's move on to Rabbi Yehuda Levi in the Kuzari. And remember, each one of these is not necessarily negating anything else but their opinion. But they're adding new insight into how to approach prayer. I personally think that the best attitude is they're all right. They're all right. And to take a little bit from each one to make a full picture of prayer. And then in the very practical sense, to apply that to our own being to make uh, prayer more meaningful. So in the Kuzari, so he has a new twist 
that the, the role of imagination this is very close to the idea of self-education but he advocated that when we say the Shemona Esrei that each one of the requests each one of the praises should be accompanied by a what, what today was called a visualization and so here the self-definition which sounds much, much more intellectual becomes much more experiential that prayer is not just requesting or uh, showing our respect for God or doing doing what God wants from us but that there is an experiential uh, facet to prayer and he connected very much with uh, the, the, the the same kind of experience as prophecy and so therefore he felt that prayer was a lot more than just requesting of God that it was a uh, an opportunity to experience what we're praying for and, and it was through visualization so in other words as, as we pray for each each thing like I said, it's very connected to the self-definition and it was written right around the same time but here again it's it's advocating using our imagination to like flesh out the what we're what we're requesting for. I mean like the secret. Because <laughs> they have visualization is a very important yeah, part of that. Yeah. Yeah, it's really important. Yeah. Is that if we're asking for wisdom that like kind of we we imagine well if we had this wisdom how would we use it? And what would it feel like to have wisdom? And to actually try to experience these things. This is a very interesting perspective. Very, very How interesting. How do you this in the context of modern life? Like you go to Minion every morning, the men daven really quickly. Like, okay, you so just do your own thing. No, so I'll tell you, is... is um, uh, I, I take a long time in Shmonesha. I rarely, I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but um, I rarely uh, finish more than a few seconds before the repetition finishes. Because I, I can't see um, just saying it so quickly without a little bit of everything that we're going to be talking about today. I... I, I I really can't daven like that. So, uh, and even sometimes I, I will rush at the end because then I, I will uh, want to continue with the, with the rest of the uh, so you seaboard. Virtually all the time. Virtually all the time. So I'm, I'm not saying that I advocate this, but um, no, it's just it's just the only way I can do it, really. Because I, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm a woman, so I don't, I'm like, oh, but I always get into this thing of like, I have to get out, 
at the house at a certain time, I have to get to work, and I didn't give myself enough time. I could have enough time to do it fast, mm-hmm. but not to do it slowly. So whenever this time like rush happened, like like we're at the clock ticking away, and I have to get to work, or I have to get out of the house, it's very hard to have any kind of convenience. Like I'm just kind of trying to get through it really fast. I know. That, that, this, is the, this is the frustration. Yeah. This is the frustration, and we need um, different strategies of how to make it better. We need different strategies how to make it better. Okay, now we'll go to Kabbalah. So here we have an interesting, interesting thing. We'll actually, we'll go back to the Rambam a bit. The the Rambam in Mishnah Torah presents prayer as what we'll call the simple paradigm. Just like like the stories in the Torah. That we talk to God, we request, we call out, and uh, God hears and hopefully He will answer. But in the Guide for the Perplexed, He presents a very, very different attitude about about prayer and uh, the way this book explains it and I, um, I actually liked it very much is he proposed a philosophical difference between the Kuzari and the Guide to the Perplexed which were written almost around the same time where he says, and he, he admits that this is a general statement, and it you know, may not hold true for every single case. But he's saying, in general, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Yehuda holds this idea he calls essential. In other words, there is something essential about mitzvot that make them meaningful. Whereas his claim is that the Rambam holds that that mitzvot are not necessarily essential, but that sometimes they have secondary meanings. Now, what do I mean by this? In the most famous case, is connected to prayer, even though it's not about prayer itself, it's about the sacrifices. So the Rambam held, and many people, you know, in fact, almost almost everyone disagreed with him. Where he held that the sacrifices, there was no essential, deep meaning in the sacrifices. That the sacrifices were basically a way to wean the Jewish people from uh, idol worship. That in at the time that the Torah was given. Sacrifices was a universal way of serving God. But it used to be that people made altars in every place to a thousand different gods. And so the weaning process was, no, only one place of worship, the Holy Temple, and only to one God, and in the way that I prescribed, and that way alone. And the Rambam held us that Again, that the, 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 the sacrifice essentially didn't really have a deep meaning. They were, part, they were means to an end. 
to wean the Jewish people from idol worship. And in the Guide to Perplex, uh, many other mitzvahs explain the same way. That, that they're not essentially meaningful. They are meaningful, but for a different purpose, as a means to an end. And so he poses like a very deep question, and it really resonated with me because I, uh, in, in Season Sparks, I posed the exact same question. I didn't know if anyone else posed it. Wow. And then I saw it, and I was yeah. like, wow. wow. And the question is over Eretz Yisrael. Is there something essentially holy about the land of Israel? And for that reason, God gave it to the Jewish people? Or is it that there is absolutely no difference between Eretz Yisrael and any other place? But its holiness comes solely from the fact that God chose it for the Jewish people, and that is where it receives its holiness. Once God chooses it for the Jewish people, and then you have a holy people living on it, or a people trying to be holy, that makes the land holy. So you see, the, it's like both of them agree that the land is holy but it's coming from completely different perspectives as to what actually makes the land holy. Because one is talking about the intrinsic value. Yes, that's what we're calling essential. So um, Yehuda Levi held that all mitzvahs were essentially meaningful, whereas the Rambam, at least in, in Guy for the Perplex, which is his attempt to unify Aristotle and Torah thought, and the Rambam, who, who, whose highest ideal was pure intellect, in fact, that was his, almost his, I mean, you can't define God, but that was his understanding of God as pure intellect. And so therefore, um, perhaps uh, the essential quality, all the this is, is, is not there. It's all there for secondary purposes. So I so so the same thing about prayer. That is there something essentially holy about the prayers, or the prayers are a means to a, like a, a, a little bit of a different end, and you see why I'm saying this is because when we get into Kabbalistic ideas of prayer then we get now we have a whole new aspect here where Kabbalah takes prayer and says every letter you're talking about the order of the prayers and how much wisdom there is in the prayer so Kabbalah takes that to like its farthest implication because first of all who composed the prayers and here now we're talking even more widely we're talking about the whole morning service the whole mincha, the whole myra not just the Shema Esri is that it was created by the Anshe Knesset Gedola of whom there were prophets and so Kabbalah understands prayer 
as the extreme of essentially and intrinsically meaningful. Not just the meaning of the words, but every letter is, in tr- is, is a vehicle to spiritual experience. And this, was, this idea was taken to its zenith by the Ariza. Ah, exactly. Where he introduces that every word of the prayer had deep kavanot, and the key word here is unification, what are called yichudim. Most of these kavanot were unifying different names of God that were implied many times in the numerical values of the words of prayer. So here we we have like a whole I wouldn't call it totally different, but a different emphasis, surely, that prayer is much much greater than self education. It's more much greater than imagination. It's much greater than a means to something else. It's that it, it has an intrinsic um, mystical holiness to it. And what does that help us accomplish? Uh, what everyone who has mentioned their problems with prayer is saying is missing. A deep spiritual experience of prayer. That's what Kabbalah wants to introduce here. Is that the act of prayer is to unify us with God. <coughs> is to... And, and we'll go even farther, is not only to make requests in this world, but it's to help um, redirect the spirit in the upper worlds in order that bounty can flow into the world. And that these unifications were uh, not changing God's mind, but were altering the spiritual reality of the world which will then filter down into the physical world. Now, I just want to say that I'm going to just bring in the Hasidic here and then we're going to see that in each one of these there's, we'll call it an advantage and disadvantage. There are problems to each one of these and there are advantages to each one of these. So the Hasidic took it another step because now that I mentioned that there are problems, so uh, let's just review them. See, if you look at, at rational explanation of prayer, where it becomes self-education, uh, well, what happens to this, this simple paradigm of prayer? It changes it all together. It's not like we don't really believe that we can change God's mind. And so the, all the asking is we're not really in that mode. But that certainly is the mode that's presented for us in the Torah. It's, it's a problem. It's a problem if you believe only in the, what's called the rational idea of prayer. If it's in addition to, then it's not as much of a problem. Then it's both. Then in the, the some of the ideas of the Rambam, um, again, we have, we have problems because if we're saying that it's not essentially 
meaningful, we can imagine uh, some of the questions that we would ask. Like, well, then why should we do it? Maybe I'm beyond that. Maybe I don't need to dive in with the community. Maybe you could could lead, it could lead to difficult problems. Leading to this other thing I'm talking about, like... Okay, so someone could say, I'm, I'm on that level already. But you know what? Right? You didn't say that we haven't hit that paradigm shift yet. Yeah. You know? It's not time. No, I know it, but I'm just saying there's a danger there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. What's the danger in moving, if it's, if it's intention, harmonized, if, it's, if that's, you know, doing the visualizations or, you know, then what is it, what is the point of sticking with the words? That's exactly what I'm saying. I am, but what's the danger in moving beyond the words? The, uh, the danger is, we'll go, so we'll go back to what the Kabbalah says, that they're essentially meaningful. Why would you want to go away from the words? That's the whole thing. If you're starting to get so philosophical about prayer and think, well, the words aren't all that important, I'll just do my own thing or not anything at all, so we would call that a danger. Because the truth is, um, the words of prayer are so beautiful. They're so meaningful. They are so deep. In a sense, why would we want to go away from them? What if they're a barrier? If they're a barrier, so then we, we need different strategies to get beyond the barriers. You're right. And for a lot of people, they're barriers. Especially people who don't know Hebrew. People who aren't, let's say, so religious and are totally intimidated by even walking into a Beit Knesset. So you're right. The, 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 there are many barriers. I know right. Hebrew. Right. I can follow mm-hmm. Gila. I'm not intimidated by walking into a Beit Knesset, but I find them a huge barrier. A huge barrier. And I don't know if understanding, like, this is the theme of this prayer and this is kind of what I'm supposed to be thinking about and this is you know, what we're thanking God for, if I'm doing that in a different way other than just saying the words, I mean, I guess Kabbalistically I'm in danger, but, uh, but, but isn't it more important to have the intention and to, to, to focus yourself towards God than to just say the words if they're a barrier? Is, this is not a simple answer. <laughs> now, to advocate, well, basically saying you don't really have to say the prayers, just do your own thing. But that's why you have this idea of heat potato. But it's right? doing your own thing within the structure of Tefila, within the. So then, as far as I'm concerned, that's the idea. Okay. And that's why this idea of, of, of using your imagination and the self education is so helpful. Because as we're saying, each. Bracha. That's why I, I can't finish my tefillah in a short amount of time. Because when I, when I ask for, for wisdom, I need to stop and really concentrate on that. And I really need to have some kind of experience with that. And when, I, when I ask for uh, healing for people, I also need to really feel um, their pain and to be dominating for that. Um, so, uh, 
I just want to tie all of this all this together. Everything that everyone is saying is so true. That's why we're having a series of classes on prayers to try to investigate. It's just virtually impossible to deal with them in in such a short time. So hopefully, by doing this for a few more weeks, we can we can get more and more places. So then the Baal Shem Tov, who knew the entire system of the Arizal and practiced it himself, but he saw this is not for the masses. Like you have, you have to be a genius of geniuses to follow the the, the covenant of the Arizal. So, so here he wanted to maintain this idea of prayer as a spiritual experience. And yet, he understood that the, the masses, not, not, even, not even just the Yehudim, but uh, what the masses needed was going back to the original, simple paradigm of saying the words and just believing exactly what the words say. Now, if you could do both, that's the idea. And it doesn't have to be necessarily the Yehudim of the Arizal. But meaning, if, if everything that we've said today, if you can take the best of everything and see in every word an essential depth and it's very good to learn the mystical meanings behind the prayers. And it's very good to understand how they can influence the upper world. But the Balshanto didn't want to lose the basic paradigm of prayer. He held that in very high esteem. Very high esteem. So, what I want to address now is our original questions and see like, how we can answer them. So if, if the first question, and this we didn't really address, but I'm going to try to answer it now. The first question was, did God need our prayers? What exactly are we doing when we pray? If we have an obligation to pray, is it because there's some need on God's part and we're fulfilling our obligation and we're like, somehow helping God so we don't see it exactly like that but there's a way to understand that we are fulfilling a need of God which is that God created the world in a manner that he wants human participation this is a foundational idea in Judaism it's very connected to tikkun olam of fixing the world it has to do with the Gemara says in, in a number of different places that if you do certain mitzvot it's as if you're a partner with God in the creation of the world and this theme of God wanting our participation and that God created the world in, in a certain manner that it would elicit this. So in that sense, since God has a purpose to the world, by our 
praying, what we'll call do, serving God in this particular manner, and connecting with God, and talking to God, and relating to God, in a sense, that is needed to fulfill the purpose of creation. It's a different way to look, look at what God needs. Because it's not a need per se. But, if we're talking human language, if, if God created the world, and He wants to bring it to a perfected level, that's what we call, talk about Mashiach, the world to come, that God has a direction to the world. And if by our serving God in this way, it is helping, then that is helping God fulfill His purpose in creation. So I personally found this is a, a very nice thing to remember when, not just praying, when doing mitzvot and everything in that nature. The second question is, if he knows what we're going to pray before we pray, why do we need to do this? And this, I think we answer to the idea of rational prayer. That it's not so much, in this aspect, not so much that God needs the prayers, or God needs to hear us pray, but that it's more for, for us. That we need to know what we're praying for. Not so much that God needs to know. Here is maybe the, the biggest one, and I almost fear. Okay, I almost fear to launch into this with only so little time left. But that was the question that we posed: Can we change God's mind? Now, this is a huge question, and really. <coughs> When we pray, it's important to have some handle or some concept of what we believe about that in order to make our prayers uh, relevant to us. So I'm, I'm going to propose a way of looking at this. It's certainly not the only way. There's a way to say, no, we cannot change God's mind. We do not presume to change God's mind. But there's another way to look at it in the following. And we'll use the metaphor of a computer. That, and this goes very, very, very well with understanding what's happening at Rosh Hashanah time. And I think you were here, and we use the same metaphor to understand what does it mean God opens the books before Rosh Hashanah and everything is recorded. And so we use the idea of a computer that every, not just person, but every blade of grass, every tree, every animal, every atom, is by definition hooked into the, a master computer in the sky, we'll call it. And because we can understand the idea of a modem, we can understand by through email and the web how everyone can be connected. How you could have millions of people right, connected, or by television, you can have billions of people watching the same thing. So we can understand that. It's something within our ability to understand. But we're all connected to the master computer. Everything we think, say, and do 
it's just automatic. It's, it's fed into the computer. And we can look at God opens the books. These are the books. Not like someone is up there like furiously writing everything we're doing, right? It's just it's automatic. It's, that's part of the system. That's how the universe works. So in in relationship, can we change God's mind? So this leads us into the paradox of free will, and we're. And, uh, we're told that this is almost the paradigm of paradox. How can we have free will and at the same thing, time say everything is God's will? Everything is shared. Every, nothing happens that is not God's will. Everything is for the good. We reinterpret the worst things as like there must be some good in this. So there's this deterministic divine providence and there's free will. And of course, we believe in both of them fervently. But there's, like, there's problems how to work it out. So one of the one of the possibilities just to think about is that in the the following sense, uh, I believe that that our prayers, in the most simplest level of request, uh, they it's not that they change God's mind but we believe God is infinite and that means God is infinitely adaptable so if God has a certain purpose for a person let's say but God part of God's will is that there's free will and that people are making decisions and a lot of times bad decisions and things are going in a million different directions so how is God's will for this person manifest so it could take one lifetime it could take ten lifetimes it could take a hundred lifetimes but there is a directing uh, motion to it, just like for the whole world. The whole world is going in a certain direction. But how we get there, and when it will happen, and how much let's say pain and suffering we have to go through, that's that's in our hands. And so therefore, if if I'm a person is sick and there's a there's a reason that they're sick, we don't know. But this person is sick maybe because of bad choices that they made. Maybe because they have to learn certain lessons. Maybe it's a, a purification for them. So this is a classic question. Why am I praying that they get better? Mm. Doesn't God know what he's doing? Mm. Why am I praying that they get better? So we're told that God has his cheshbon, his accounting, we have our accounting. Mm. Our accounting is if we see people in pain, our job is to fix the world, to try to alleviate pain. It's not try to figure out why this person has whatever they have, or why this person is poor. Because if, if not, if a poor person has, holds out his hand to me, I'd say, who am I to give him money? 
he's poor because there are reasons. I don't know what the reasons are, but he's obviously poor because he's meant to be poor. So who am I to give him money? But we don't hold like that. There are religions and philosophies that hold like that. That is not what we hold. We see a person, in fact the Torah tells us, give him. Don't presume to know why like don't get don't mess with my cosmonaut. Right? I'll take care of my business, you take care of your business. Mm-hmm. So therefore, if if someone is sick and I'm praying, so many times I craft my prayer like this is 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 God can't you sh- can't you teach him a different way? Mm-hmm. Maybe can you give them another chance? You know what? How much good they could do? Can is it possible that they learn what they have to learn without so much suffering? Can you please make them well and like you know, adjust that the plan will just adjust itself, that it will work itself out in a different way. So in other words. And I believe that that's the only way we can understand free will and God's will. Because as we make each choice, day by day, minute by minute, God is infinitely adaptable to make it fit in to the ultimate will for that person. And since God is is infinitely adaptable, so it could take one lifetime, or five, or ten. But then there are times that God does decree, and the decree cannot be changed. Cannot be changed. But even then, if a decree can't be changed, if someone is dying of cancer, so they could spend the last month of their life in great pain, bitter, um, you know, tell people off, be angry, but that same person can take the time to put his whole life in order. So then we could pray for that. That person could go either way. Right? And since even science tells us there is a reality that everything we put out there, there is a reality to it. So, and, and they actually have done uh, enough scientific tests now that it's been reported many times that it established a prayer does work. They've done all these experiments. Scientists have done these experiments. Again, how it works and why it works and in what cases it works, that we don't know yet. So, taking all that together, just to answer can we change God's mind? So sometimes it's, it's really no. No. It, 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 you know, and it, it, it's not even sometimes changing God's mind. It's just we, you have to lay in the bed that you make. And of course we don't know the, the accounting from last lifetime and five lifetimes ago. We see very little. The reality we see is very, very little. And then the last question is, does God care? 
We pose that in the beginning. Like if we're praying and we believe in a personal God, so we have to be- believe that God cares. And almost by definition, we answer yes. Doesn't mean that God gives me what I want all the time. Doesn't mean that God gives me an easy life. But do I believe that God cares? If I don't believe, in a sense, the entire structure falls down. <laughs> the whole thing falls down. If I don't, and then we get back to this, in a sense, a more nebulous energy in the universe that. It's all dependent on what I put out, and and that's not really our our belief. So we we're going to end now, and I'll end with a, a blessing. That the purpose of bringing up these questions is is because not only do people have these questions, but as you brought up, people have much more like even closer to home, just like chocolate, how to make. Dominating better. So hopefully we will get there, you know, in 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 the next two weeks. Um, but the blessing is that all of these opinions are correct. They're really all correct, and they can all help us formulate a more relevant and real uh, dimension to our experience of prayer, and. Uh, I'm a firm believer in the essential uh, meaning of prayer. And it doesn't mean that uh, there could be, as the Rambam says, he could be right. But that's also not my, I don't know if it's my husband. Right now, I was handed what I consider absolutely incredible prayers in Jewish tradition. The prayers of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are like, they are so profound. They are so profound. And we should have an appreciation for them. And we should, we should have the chance to learn about how, making, how, how to make prayer more meaningful.